Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. The year 2020 was rough for a number of reasons. You know, pandemic, contentious presidential election, massive civil rights movement, you know, all in one stressful, crazy year. I'm sure I don't need to remind you. It was it was not that long ago. But (laughs) something else happened towards the end of the year that you might have missed, especially if you aren't in the world of academia. A number of scholars, a surprising number of them historians, were revealed to be white women pretending to be black or Latinx. We all remember Rebecca Dolezal, the head of the Spokane, Washington branch of the NAACP, who was found in 2017 to be a white woman pretending to be black. But in late 2020 came the revelation that scholars were doing the same thing Dolezal had done. Jessica Krug, a professor of black studies and scholar of the African diaspora, who claimed first to be North African, then African-American, and then finally Afro-Caribbean, wrote a bombshell medium post confessing to her false identity after another scholar, scholar, Yomira Figueroa, called her out on Twitter. Can I just interrupt to say the more that I had to read about Jessica Krug or Jessica Krug's example... For this episode, the more and more pissed off I got. Like, I had read about it before, but, like, I dove a little bit more deeply into it for this episode. And, like, this lady. Okay, anyway. Yes. Yes. Shortly after Krug was outed, a graduate student named C.V. Vitolo Haddad was also called out in a medium essay written by a graduate school colleague. Vito Haddad admitted afterward that they were of Italian descent, although they had claimed various racial identities over a series of several years. And not long after that, Kelly Keen Sharp resigned her position at Furman University after it was revealed that she was not, as she claimed, Chicana, a claim that it seems helped her to get a fellowship intended to enhance diversity on Midwestern college campuses. <sighs> but... There were more. A white male chemistry professor from the University of New Hampshire posed as a woman of color and scientist on Twitter to criticize everything from Black Lives Matter to campus activism. And he said afterwards that this was like his way of being able to like criticize woke college campus culture from the inside because if if like a black woman was saying it, then it would be acceptable. Uh, a neuroscientist named Bethann McLaughlin spent years creating an elaborate fake queer Native American sexual assault survivor named Sciencing By on Twitter. She was also uh, revealed to be you know, making this up this year. Why were all of these people pretending to be members of marginalized groups? <sighs> L.A. Times journalist Aaron Aubrey Kaplan suggests that the answer might have something to do with white people wanting to find legitimacy in their positions in Black and Latinx studies. The most charitable reading of their passé noir is still a troubling irony, says Kaplan, that they are sincerely intentioned, empathetic white people felt that they could only serve Black consciousness by going undercover, slipping on a black identity like a costume, end quote. 
Presenting themselves as people of color provided these scholars with a certain kind of social capital, not to mention access to programs designed to provide opportunities for underrepresented groups. Folks like Krug, Dolezal, Vitola Haddad, and Sharp are not the first white people who pass themselves off as black. White men have pretended to be black to win in majority black political districts or to find success in the jazz world. White women pretended to be fugitive slaves to sell abolitionist books. White men have passed themselves off as Native American to get cast in film roles. For these white folks, the benefits of being considered a person of color were based on the perception that minorities somehow have special access, abilities, or freedoms unavailable to white people, which is, of course, both wildly untrue and also oversimplified. In reality, whites passing as people of color is a manifestation of their inability to believe or inability to accept that there might be spaces and roles that might exclude white people. But historically, when blacks passed as white, it was not the same, nor was it just a way to land a job or garner some social cachet. When black Americans passed as white, they did so to try to slip free of structural racism, and the results weren't all positive. Today, we're talking about racial passing. I'm Sarah. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. We're so honored to have listeners from all over the world. We have a global community here listening to this podcast, which is reflected both in our download numbers. Thank you for listening. And also in our incredible auger and excavator level patrons. Uh, We want to give a shout out to Colin, Susan and Peggy, who are right here with us in Buffalo. Lauren and Edward out in Ohio, Denise uh, to the our east in Albany, Iris in Washington, Maddie in Texas, Maggie in Oregon, Danielle in Ohio, Lisa in British Columbia, Canada, Agnes in Iceland, Maria in Germany. My goodness, thank you all from the bottom of our little historian hearts. Uh, listener, if you are not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Check us out at patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. Before we get started, I want to make a really important note. We're going to be talking intensively about race in this episode. And as a history podcast, we sometimes uh, will use terminology that's no longer acceptable to refer to people of color. I worked really hard to make sure that I edited quotes to take out the most offensive language. And I make note of that in the copy in footnotes um, where I've, I've removed an offensive term and put in a more acceptable term, especially because we have to say these things out loud. We'll also always make sure that you know that we're using those terms historically by, you know, making sure that it, you're aware that it's in a quote Um or in some other way, you know, making it clear that we're not using those terms um, ourselves. Um, but, you know, content warning, if those those issues or words um, are uncomfortable for you, just be aware that they do come up. The history of racial passing, a black person passing as white, as we'll mostly be focusing on, that's certainly not the only way of passing, but that's the the, the type of passing we're going to be talking about here today, reveals a great deal about race in America. 
Passing isn't a solely American phenomenon, of course, but it has been most closely associated with America because of its bipolar system of race. For over a century in the United States, you were either black or you were white. Famously, the one drop rule, which was sometimes codified into law, but always adhered to socially and culturally, dictated that a person was black if they had even one drop of quote unquote Negro blood. In other countries, the color line is not literally quite so black and white. Brazil, for instance, has 136 different informal designations of race and five official racial categories. And while it's no post-racial paradise, the more complex racial system means that passing is no simple matter. In the U.S., on the other hand, racial categories actually hardened over time. As we've discussed before, uh, I think Marissa had discussed this in a couple of episodes, race was far more fungible before and during the 18th century, when there were several forms of unfree labor, and when race was intertwined with region, ethnicity, class, and status. However, by the 19th century, the entrenchment of race-based chattel slavery meant that blackness became synonymous with slavery and whiteness with freedom. And as historian Alison Hobbs, whose book Chosen Exile will be using extensively in this episode, notes, there has never been a real in-between category as in other countries, such as the mixed-race categories of Branquina in Brazil, colored in South Africa, and white in Jamaica. And pause, white in Jamaica is like biracial. Hmm. That's what that term Interesting. means. Yeah, I didn't know that until I read this book. Excellent. Americans did utilize the category of mulatto on the census until 1930, but the category actually meant very little since even quote-unquote one drop of black blood made you black for all practical purposes. This all meant that the ability to pass oneself off as white was particularly powerful in the United States. It was all or nothing. But that doesn't mean that passing was simple. Passing as white often involved more than just possessing white skin. It meant using skill sets, mannerisms, speaking patterns, costuming, and other artifacts of status to trick not only the eye, but the brain. In the 18th and early 19th century, when racial categories were still relatively fluid, for example, for enslaved people or in the antebellum north where slavery had been abolished, passing didn't necessarily mean passing as white, but passing as free. In fact, I think it's critically important, as Alison Hobbs says in A Chosen Exile, to, quote, locate the shift from passing as free to passing as white, because it's immensely revealing of the shifting beliefs about race in the United States. So let's start by looking at passing as free. In the 18th and early 19th century United States, when both race and labor statuses were more complex, passing as free was more important than passing as white. After all, slaves and servants of African and European backgrounds were equally described by the skin tone, ranging from tawny to swarthy to brown and black, a term that was sometimes even used to refer to the Irish. So for a light-skinned person of African descent to pass as white wasn't nearly as useful as anyone of any skin tone being able to pass themselves off as free. Enslaved people could use surreptitiously gained skills like reading and writing to forge passes that would let them move about freely. An enslaved man named Henry Bibb understood that the ability to write could give him the ability to write his own ticket to freedom. 
As a household servant, he was often entrusted with errands for which his master wrote out a pass. He understood their power and knew that if he could only write, he might be able to forge his own. In his memoir, he recalled, quote, Whenever I got hold of an old letter that had been thrown away, or a piece of white paper, I would save it to write on. I have gone off in the woods and spent the greater part of the day alone, trying to learn to write myself a pass. In the 1830s, Frederick Douglass pinned his hopes for freedom on his ability to write. As a child, Douglas was taught to read and write a little bit by a mistress, Sophia Ald, until her husband told her to stop, after which she not only stopped, but endeavored to make sure that he never learned. After that, Douglas strove to teach himself, first by paying close attention to the marking ship carpenters scrawled on timber, then by sneaking away his owner's son's instruction books. Quote, I wish to learn to write, Douglas later explained, as I might have occasion to write my own pass, which he intended to use to escape bondage. Masters knew that the ability to write was key to escaping slavery. After all, that's why Frederick Douglass's master moved so quickly and decisively to shut down his wife's attempt to educate young Frederick. In runaway slave ads, owners warned slave catchers that their enslaved people had the ability to write to explain away any passes that they might display, or complained that their bondspeople had duped others to forge passes for them. The ability to read and write might also give their escaping property the ability to go even further, finding work, reading maps, or writing out freedom papers. Writing made passing as free possible. According to historian Jill Lepore, quote, to write was to defy bondage, not only in that it provided the ability to escape slavery, but that it provided the ability to assert humanity. After all, both Henry Bibb and Frederick Douglass used their writing skills to pen narratives which testified to their talents and helped to turn the public against the institution of slavery. If writing allowed enslaved men and women to pass as free, so too did swagger. Part of being free was acting the part to evade the interest of slave catchers. For example, fugitive slave Isaac Williams and his comrades relied on simply projecting freedom to keep them from being questioned by slave patrols. Quote, all of us lit our cigars and put on our hats on one side of our heads as though we were on a lark together, he later recalled. Banks and I strolled along together in a free and easy sort of style. This would be about the last thing the authorities would expect in runaways. We passed along the elegant streets, looking everybody in the face and acting as though we feared nothing. We were not suspected in the least. Not one person asked the band for their papers that night. It's not surprising, then, that runaway ads often complained about slaves being, quote, artful, cunning villains who make use of every specious and fairy tale to induce belief of his being a freeman. I think the frustrated whine of the slaver in the runaway ad there is particularly telling because it captures one of the big issues at the center of passing as a quote-unquote problem in America. It was about tricking people who were ostensibly in power. Isaac Williams was able to pull one over on observers just by being a great actor. And for Southern men, especially, who were obsessed with saving face, this was a profound insult. For more on this concept of the lie in Southern masculinity, see our episode on manhood in the Civil War era. We talk about this concept of the lie in um, 
that episode quite extensively because this the the antebellum south was a world of appearances and if you were able to trick someone especially to trick a white southern man um that went beyond just being like oh you pulled one over on me that was like a profound insult and we, we discussed that much more extensively in that episode Uh, But throughout the first half of the 19th century, the United States shifted from being a society with slaves to being a slave society, a process that inextricably linked black skin with servitude and whiteness with freedom. As skin color became the indicator of slavery and freedom, the ability to forge a past didn't necessarily provide adequate protection. Instead, the ability to pass as white became a far safer way to escape. But as masters worried about black slaves being able to use light skin tone to pass as white and escape, abolitionists began to use the opposite fear that darker skinned whites could be mistaken as black and thus enslaved. For abolitionists, the moral panic that arose from the fear of such quote-unquote white slavery was useful, if not because it was realistic, because it really wasn't, um, but because it was a way of marshalling support for the cause of abolition. First, there was the fear that white children might be wrongly enslaved. Stories appeared in antebellum newspapers about white children kidnapped from orphanages in northern cities and then sold into bondage, and white babies hidden away in slave cabins to hide extramarital affairs. But the idea of white slaves was also used as a euphemistic way for abolitionists to talk about one particular horror of slavery, the sexual violation of enslaved women. Light-skinned enslaved children, they pointed out, were proof of the immorality of slavery. Slavers could not only rape enslaved women or hold them as concubines, but also enslave their own children. Henry Ward Beecher, who, like, who boy... We have also talked about before. He's a a major player in the uh, Victoria Woodhall episode. Mm -hmm. So check that out. Um, Used uh, Beecher used the specter of innocent ivory skinned little girls on plantations to appeal to northern parents, asking them to imagine girls, quote, of sweet face, light hair and fair as a lily. Then warning them that, quote, as long as children who looked so white were enslaved, no white child was safe. So there's a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot to unpack there, right? One I think is really important to point out that like they're always referring to girls. Like I think every example of the white slaves that I saw in in doing this research for this episode was a, a little white girl, mm. which tells us a lot about you know the the way that um there was a a fear about white femininity and and how it was potentially under attack from both you know sexually aggressive southern white men but also from black men right and, right. and it was how dangerous and degrading it would be for them to be raised in this system of slavery but i think there's also something in there about colorism yeah and I mean, I'm not a historian of America or American racism by any means, but I imagine that there is some sort of connection here between our contemporary colorism, because it tends to yes. be focused on 
women and their lightness or darkness, right? And beauty standards having to do with lightness versus darkness. Yes, yes, yes. And not on men, right? Oh, certainly. I think that there is definitely a really important link there. And I think it's, I mean, it's interesting that we're having this conversation right now because just this week, I don't even know if you um, saw this. I wouldn't have seen it except one of my students um, shared it with me. A a local morning show got embroiled embroiled in this conversation about the level of attractiveness of various women of color as compared to their skin tone like toast. Mm -hmm. If that sounds really confusing to you, listener, it's because it's really stupid and confusing in real life. It's essentially they were saying like, if you were interested in women of color, how would you compare your level of interest as it compares to the color of toast? Am I describing that correctly? Yeah, pretty much. So, like, the higher the number, the darker your toast. And this one of the guys, I didn't even bother to learn what their names are, but one of the guys was talking about, like, well, I'm sort of, like, mostly attracted to, like, a Halle Berry, who would be, like, a, I don't know, I can't remember what they said, like a three or something. Uh, but I wouldn't be attracted to Serena Williams. And I, I, again, just as you said, I think that's very telling because who has gotten much more racist um, vitriol directed at them? Halle Berry or Serena Williams? Mm-hmm. Serena Williams, right? So um, this is this is absolutely something that um, is unfortunately a very contemporary issue as well. Although Halle Berry, if you're listening... We don't know your struggle, so please don't please don't think that we. Oh sure, sure. Yeah. No, I mean don't like, think you I, haven't experienced racism. Of course not. No, I I just mean that like Serena Williams has very famously yes. been um, the uh, public attacks. Yes, yes exactly, right. absolutely. So to get back to this, sorry for that that long uh, tangent there. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I know that was like tangential, but I also think it was important to kind of important. unpack. Yeah, because yeah. so much of this episode has to do with the relative privileges that light-skinned individuals had. And I don't mean to make that sound like they didn't have struggles. They did. It's just that that was an additional tool that light-skinned people had that darker-skinned people didn't have. So colorism certainly is at play in this episode. Right. Or at least that is a tool that white people use to further divide. That as well. An enslaved class of people. Absolutely. Definitely. So, of course, once whiteness became synonymous with freedom, it meant that light-skinned slaves could use their appearance to help them escape. One very famous example is the story of William and Ellen Craft. Both William and Ellen were born into slavery in Macon, Georgia, where they were owned by different masters. Ellen was the daughter of her white master and an enslaved woman who herself was biracial. As a result, Ellen was very light-skinned and sometimes even mistaken as a member of the white family. As a child, this meant that she was a constant source of embarrassment to her mistress, who saw her as a reminder of her husband's sex, likely non-consensual, with an enslaved woman. When Ellen was only 11, her mistress seized the opportunity of her daughter's wedding to send Ellen away as a wedding gift, separating her from her own family in the process. Ellen's new master bought a a half-interest in a boy, William, when he was auctioned to pay for his former master's gambling debts. 
Almost a decade later, Allen and William jumped the broom in 1846. William and Ellen almost did not marry. For a few years, instead, they tried to figure out ways that they could escape before marrying, largely because Ellen, um, and I think probably to a certain extent William too, couldn't bear the thought of having children while enslaved. In their memoir, which, as I understand it, is credited, like it it is written by William and Ellen Craft, but um, I think it's largely accepted that William did most of the writing and it's from William's perspective. Um, William wrote in the memoir, quote, my wife was torn from her mother's embrace in childhood and taken to a distant part of the country. She had seen other children separated from their parents in this cruel manner that the mere thought of her ever becoming mother to a child to linger out a miserable existence under the wretched system of American slavery appeared to fill her very soul with horror. And, And how could it not? Right. But it soon set in that escape was probably impossible for William and Ellen. They were in Georgia and a thousand miles from the closest free state. There was no way to simply run away and evade slave catchers and their hounds for a thousand miles. So instead, they married and spent the next two years working and plotting to find a safer and more practical means of escape. Finally, William hatched a plan that hinged on Ellen's light skin. But Ellen couldn't just pretend to be like a free white woman and like walk out of Georgia, at least not with William. An unaccompanied black man and a white woman wouldn't just look suspicious, they would look scandalous. So they would actually draw more attention. So instead, William reasoned that Ellen could dress as a man and pretend to be a traveling invalid gentleman accompanied by William posing as a body servant. They decided to leave at Christmas time when it was somewhat common for masters to provide slaves with passes to visit family. With passes and the excuse of visiting, they figured that they could delay notice of their escape long enough for them to get a safe distance away. The plan required Ellen to use more than just her skin to pass. She needed to look the part. This meant acquiring a gentleman's clothes over a period of months, hiding them away, cutting her hair, and saving money for a pair of glasses to hide her eyes. But then they also realized that as much as she might look like a respectable white gentleman, she also had to play the part. She needed to be able to exist around other respectable white gentlemen convincingly, which Alison Hobbs notes, quote, required a nuanced understanding of Southern social and gender norms, thus revealing the crucial linkages that passing forged between race and class. Ellen knew that she would have to mask her inability to read and write. Illiteracy would be a dead giveaway. She devised a way of pretending that her right hand and jaw were wounded and wrapped them up with bandages and poultices. Once, when a friend of her master happened to sit next to them on the train, Ellen had to pretend to be deaf for hours so that Ellen wouldn't get trapped in small talk. For most of their journey, Ellen was able to use her injured hand as an excuse to ask hotel clerks to sign for her. And in one instance, her ability to emulate white Southern masculinity got them out of a tight spot. When a steamship clerk refused to sign for Ellen, just as the couple thought it was time to panic, a man that Ellen had met on the train walked up and chastised the clerk for giving her a hard time. Uh, The man insisted that he knew Ellen's kin like a book. 
Afraid to cross a wealthy planter, the steamship captain personally signed for Ellen and later apologized, saying, quote, It was not out of any disrespect to you, sir, but they make it a rule to be very strict in Charleston. I have known families to be detained there with their slaves till reliable information could be res- received respecting them. If they were not very careful, a damned abolitionist might take off a lot of valuable slaves. Ellen's ability to fully embody the role of white master also hinged on her ability to treat her husband like a slave. Over and over, fellow travelers suggested to Ellen that she was too kindly towards William. One military officer said Ellen was, quote, very likely to spoil uh, his boy or her boy by saying thank you to him. I assure you, sir, nothing spoils a slave so soon as saying thank you and if you please to him. He then reprimanded his own enslaved man harshly just to demonstrate to Ellen how she should best keep her slaves in line. It was an enormous relief when Ellen and William finally arrived in Philadelphia, where they quickly got assistance from the Underground Railroad. In 1850, when the Fugitive Slave Act again put their freedom in jeopardy, they moved to England, where they lived safely until after the Civil War. Passing as free, or as free and white, was useful in the years before slavery ended, when the goal was getting out of bondage to a free state. People with all different skin tones could use a variety of means to pass as free. But after the 13th Amendment ended slavery, Americans became more focused on policing the color line than ever before, which made passing as white the only remaining option. Now, Literal freedom wasn't the only goal. Instead, it was the social freedom that whiteness could offer. And to be clear, we do mean Americans there, because racism was not limited to the South. In some cases, light skin gave a person the choice to live as either black or white. This decision was highly personal. Take, for instance, the children of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Jefferson and Hemings had six children, of whom four survived, Beverly, Harriet, Madison, and Eston. All four were freed in one way or another. Harriet and Beverly, quote-unquote, ran away, um, likely with Jefferson's permission, in 1822. In 1826, Jefferson's will allowed for the freedom of all four of the Hemings children upon their 18th birthday. And as an aside, Annette Gordon-Reed argues that this was likely the fulfillment of a promise that he had made to Sally Hemings when he persuaded her to return to Virginia with him from Paris in 1789. Because she could have, um, since slavery was illegal in France, she could have um, stayed in France and lived as a free woman. But she didn't. And she came back to, to Virginia pregnant. By the 1830s, three of four of the Hemings children lived as white people. Only Madison continued to identify as black. Now, this made sense. Their mother, Sally, was only one quarter African-American and was described during her lifetime as, quote unquote, mighty near white herself. His descendants, Madison's descendants, also identified as both white and black. In fact, one of Madison's sons, Thomas Eston Hemings, fought in the United States Colored Troops, while another, William, fought as a white man in the Union Army. Like, is that not just totally amazing? I I'm, I could, like, read about the Jefferson Hemings family forever. It's like, it just absolutely never gets old. Um, and I'll just add that I did find a somewhat 
shady reference to another one of Madison's sons serving in the Confederate Army as a, you know, as a white man in the Confederate Army. But I wasn't able to find any um, real good proof of that. So, you know, I didn't include it as like something that's accepted. It It's there's a I guess there's a rumor or there's a suggestion that that happened, but I don't know whether or not it's true. Pro- I would say probably not. Eston moved to Wisconsin, where he changed his last name to Jefferson and lived as a white person. At least for Beverly and Harriet, being white allowed them to slip away into free society. In Madison's 1873 recollections published in an Ohio newspaper, Beverly and Harriet used their whiteness to shed any connection to Monticello. For example, Madison says this about Harriet, quote, she thought it was to her interest um, on going to Washington when she ran away from Monticello to Washington, D.C., to assume the role of a white woman. And by her dress and conduct as such, I am not aware that any identity as Harriet Hemings of Monticello has ever been discovered. And um, from all the evidence that we have Madison never heard from Harriet again. Um, Harriet quite literally just slipped away um, and there is no kind of historical record about her or um, really much of anything about Beverly either. One thing that I find fascinating about the Hemings children is how they each forged their own identities, defining for themselves whether they were white, black, or both, defining whether they were the child of Thomas Jefferson or just another free person. Some of them, like Madison, you know, spoke extensively about the fact that he was Jefferson's child, right? He claimed him publicly. Um, Aston renames himself Jefferson, right? Aston Jefferson instead of Aston Hemings. The other two just kind of slipped away and and never never discussed it as far as we know. So it's it's really complex and it shows just how complex these decisions about how to identify for mixed race people in the 19th century could be. Yeah. And we we don't have records that can tell us exactly why Beverly Harriet and Eston all ultimately decided to be white. But we could probably assume that at least to some extent it had to do with their ability to earn a living in a white world. Well-paying jobs were almost entirely closed to black Americans, whether they lived in the North or the South. And passing as white could mean the difference between struggle and comfort. Because good jobs were almost entirely restricted to white people, Allison Hobbs points out that when black families said that a family member had a white-collar job, it was often a way of also admitting that they were passing as white. And for some black Americans, this meant that they only pretended to be white during working hours in what Hobbs calls nine-to-five passing or tactical passing. In fact, Some didn't even really actively pass, but instead allowed whites to assume what they wanted about their heritage. Anita Hemings, no relation to those of of Monticello, allowed her professors and classmates at Vassar to assume she was white and wasn't discovered to be black until just before graduation. The faculty decided at the last minute to let her graduate, making her the first black woman to graduate from Vassar. It was a point of hilarious pride to Henry Park's family that he was, quote, the only colored fireman in New Haven because he neglected to mention his race when in the hiring process. Barrington Guy, a singer, dancer, and actor, enjoyed great success in vaudeville until 1939 when he was outed as black. 
Until then, Guy explained, quote, folks thought I was white and I didn't enlighten them. In fact, Guy also used another tactic some black Americans used to suggest that they were of color, but not black. He claimed his father was from India. This tactic could also help black Americans get out of uncomfortable or even dangerous situations. Writer and activist James Weldon Johnson allowed white fellow train passengers to mistake him as Cuban because of his Panama hat. Soon they were chatting and sharing a flask of whiskey. For others, passing wasn't a temporary measure, but a new state of living. After she graduated from college, Elsie Roxborough, daughter of a wealthy Detroit family, decided to pursue a career as a model and screenwriter, but wasn't able to find work in California as a black woman. So she dyed her hair red and moved to New York, where she passed as white. In 1937, she wrote to former boyfriend Langston Hughes that she, quote, intended to cease being colored. In New York, she became well-known as Mona Monet, even as Black Detroit newspapers reported on her incognito life passing. So, like, in New York, she was white. In Detroit, the, the conversation happening in Black newspapers was, oh, you know, Elsie Roxborough is pretending to be this white woman named Mona Monet. So it's like a weirdly um, Weird. open secret. Yeah. But Roxborough, or Manet, as she went um, by for most of her, her you know, working life, did not make it long in New York either. Sadly, in 1949, she was found dead in her apartment of a drug overdose. Her death certificate listed her as white. After her death, a cousin revealed that the family was actually split by the color line. More than one member lived as white, or as one cousin stated, quote, was on the other side. And this is language that that was commonly used, especially in the 20th century, passing over or passing over to the other side or being on the other side was a way of referring to the, the color line as an actual thing that split people into white and black. Elsie Roxborough's passing was well known in her hometown of Detroit, and she even kept in touch, however loosely, with some of her black family and friends. But others who chose to pass felt that the only way to be successful was to cut off any ties with their former black lives. Hobbs also tells the story of Ernest Turagano, a black railroad porter who worked traveling between his home in New Orleans and San Francisco. After a couple of years, Turagano, who was married and had a child in New Orleans, set up a secret second home in San Francisco. He slowly established a new white life, first studying law and establishing a practice in San Francisco, and finally, by 1915, abandoning his former family altogether. He never contacted his wife or daughter again, who assumed he was dead. He came to describe himself as a French Creole, married a white woman, and became a very prominent bankruptcy attorney. The story would be wild enough if it ended here, but it gets more complicated. In 1957, Ernest Targano died, leaving only one heir, his abandoned daughter, Gladys. Gladys had no idea her father had even still been alive until her aunt, who Torregano had remained in touch with, told her the truth. So Gladys went about trying to claim her inheritance. Ultimately, the court ruled against her, despite an overwhelming amount of evidence that showed she was Ernest's daughter. 
The testimony of her uncle, who also lived as a white man, trumped any evidence presented by a black woman. And it was Alfred who ended up with Ernest's estate. And and just like to add insult to injury, the court actually gave Gladys a settlement of one dollar and gave the rest of the estate to Ernest's brother, Alfred, who also had passed his entire life. Yeah, it's a it's a wild story that when this happened in 1957, this made like national headlines. It was a, a scandalous um, story of someone who passed under everyone's noses. So passing as white might bring more social freedoms, but it also brought pain and disconnection. Civil rights activist Mary Church Terrell wrote an essay, the, the date of its uh, a publication is unknown, that laid out the complicated nature of passing as white. It was tempting and understandably tempting, she wrote, but it resulted in broken families and the perpetuation of white supremacy. She knew a young woman, she wrote, who was light-skinned enough to pass as white. She writes, quote, she married a young physician who could also pass for white. He suddenly decided that he would shake off the body of this dusky death, so to speak, and cast his lot with the dominant race. When he revealed his plans to his wife, she told him that she would rather live on a small income, if necessary, than have a large one if she were obliged to forsake her family and friends, end quote. Her husband couldn't be dissuaded, though, and abandoned his wife and daughter. I could not help but wondering, Terrell mused, how the husband and father could have summoned the strength and the courage to bid them goodbye. This is uh, reminding me of the book that you did not read for our last book club meeting, The Vanishing Half, Mm. which is all about a family that is sort of broken in two um, because they're from the, like, whitest black town in some Mm. southern state it's all made up it's like near virginia virginia or something Mm -hmm. um but one of the daughters of this particularly white light-skinned family she moves to california passes as white um Mm -hmm. and just abandons her twin sister and her Mm. mother and never speaks to them again yeah um but her her other sister had a dark-skinned baby with a black man in dc who turns out to be like abusive so she ends up back at their hometown um and then that the the daughter who had the darker skin ends up meeting the her cousin who is obviously just a white girl in Mm. california and it's really it's really interesting yeah um and it's i think it reflects a lot of these themes that you're that you're talking that you're pointing out here with these um 19th early 20th century sources on passing and the Definitely. the disruption that it creates for families. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think one of the things that that Alison Hobbs um really does a great job I think in this book A Chosen Exile of demonstrating is that the concept of passing is all about a strict about there being a strict bipolar racial system, right? Mm-hmm. That there is white and there is black. But that all of these examples show just how complicated this actually is, right? right? Like this, the, the the cousins that you're mentioning, where one is darker skinned and one is lighter skinned, like the like the lighter skinned one living as white. But then there's also this kind of like under unspoken, you know, um, concept that like, well, they're not really white, right? Okay, but, so like, yeah. what what counts as white then, right? Like, right? What is and, the yeah yeah? And, but her the, mother. Her mother, the the light skinned cousin, 
she never tells her daughter yeah that she's you know she's got this black family back in the east coast right. so it's really it's what it's wild because that girl grows up think you know i'm white she treats dark-skinned people very poorly you know yep. drops n-bombs and all this other terrible stuff um but then ends up sort of through her cousin learning the truth of her family origins yeah. And that's like just shakes her to her core. I um, bet. Yeah. 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 In fact, we'll talk about an example in a little bit um, that's very similar to that where, you know, children were raised not knowing right. that they were not white as they assumed their whole life. Yeah. Right? I want, I'm, I'm assuming that the author of Vanishing Half is drawing on all this historical examples. Probably. Yeah. I mean, some of these examples were were quite famous. Yeah. So anyway, and another example, Langston Hughes, the intellectual leader of the Harlem Renaissance, articulated the pain of passing in a powerful epistolary short story called Passing. In it, a young man named Jack writes a letter to his mother, apologizing for pretending not to know her when they pass each other in the street. Isn't that sad? Oh, my God. It's such a sad story. And he did it because passing made his life easier. It allowed him to earn $65 a week in an office job and put him in line for a promotion. Jack had always been mistaken for white, he reminded her, so it wasn't hard to pretend, but it was still hard. Ma, I felt mighty bad about last night, Jack writes to his mother, the first time we'd met in public that way. That's the kind of thing that makes passing hard, having to deny your own family when you see them. And that that story is sad also. I mean, it's just it's just tragic. But um, one of the things that I think is saddest about that story is that he keeps, you know, revealing that it was his mother who encouraged him to do this, even if it meant cutting off ties with her because she knew the opportunities that it would open up for him. which is, a, you know, a, unfortunately a major part of why people chose to do this. Yeah. Um, the, the early 20th century wasn't only the age of Jim Crow. It was also the age of eugenics. Suddenly, the American obsession with policing the color line became even more hysterical as the old adage about one drop was taken more literally than ever. Within the eugenic scientific framework, even one drop of black blood would corrupt an otherwise fit white bloodline. But it was hard to identify who was really white and who was really black. In her essay that we mentioned before, Mary Church Terrell gives several examples where those charged with enforcing the Jim Crow segregation laws on trains got it disastrously wrong. And this, she's so sarcastic and sardonic in this essay. It's just fantastic. She writes this. Quote, this very difficulty of distinguishing between white and colored people has caused several railroad companies to part with considerable cash. In one southern state a few years ago, a wealthy white woman with a rich olive complexion was forced to take a seat in the Jim Crow car because the conductor told her that he knew she was colored and he was hard to fool. Her husband sued the railroad company for $50,000, but compromised on $20,000. In Kentucky, a white man was forcibly ejected from a coach set aside for people of his own race and placed in a Jim Crow car. The railroad company paid him $10,000 for making such a terrible blunder. 
That the courts consider it a disgrace and a misfortune to be colored is shown by the large amounts cheerfully awarded in order to heal the wounded feelings of white people who have been mistaken for colored. A colored man who is much fairer than the average Caucasian was once forced out of a Jim Crow car where he was conversing with people in which the conductor insisted he belonged. When he sued the railroad company for this insult, one cent was considered sufficient to heal the wounded feelings of a colored man who had been falsely accused of being white, end quote. Like, Mary Church Terrell is just, like, fire in this essay. It's great. Yeah. This ambiguity didn't stop eugenicists from working incredibly hard to prevent any and all miscegenation. Walter Plecker was a fiercely eugenicist doctor who worked as the Virginia State Registrar of Vital Statistics from 1912 to 1946. He was an active member of Virginia's Anglo-Saxon Clubs, a white supremacist political organization that lobbied hard for anti-miscegenation laws. The club, with Plecker's help, worked to get Virginia's infamous 1924 Act to Preserve Racial Integrity passed. As soon as the law was passed, Plecker devoted essentially all of his energies to ensuring that not a single colored person could pass as white and contribute to the corruption of the quote-unquote true white race. Plecker instituted a policy that asked Virginians to register voluntarily with the Bureau of Vital Statistics declaring their racial identity. But while it was technically voluntary, a registration was required for children to attend school um, and for men to register for the draft and for people to marry. So it wasn't voluntary. That's not voluntary. (laughs) Right. As people registered, Plecker tirelessly investigated claims of whiteness. He told county clerks to slow walk marriage licenses until the racial histories of the betrothed could be extensively researched. One young woman received a letter from Plecker that interracial marriage was illegal and that she should, quote, immediately break off entirely with this young mulatto man that she believed was white. Plecker, through his research, believed he knew otherwise. He wrote to doctors and midwives who delivered babies, reminding them that it was against the law for them to declare a baby white on a birth certificate without definitive proof of its racial purity. He wrote to to a midwife named Mrs. Cheatham who to insist that she had misclassified a biracial baby as white, saying, quote, this is to give you a warning that this is a mulatto child and you cannot pass it off as white. See that this child is not allowed to mix with white children. It cannot go to white schools and it can never marry a white person in Virginia. It is an awful thing. This guy was cuckoo bananas gross um this was just a, a single-minded mission that he had i mean he, he just worked tirelessly to do all of this essentially by himself uh he even wrote to cemeteries alerting them that they had unwittingly interred black people in their all-white cemeteries yeah uh, this is from one letter Quote, we are giving you this information to take such steps as you deem necessary. You probably know whether the state law permits use of a white cemetery by colored people. It might prove embarrassing to meet with, you know, I'm inserting the term black people visiting with one of their graves on an adjoining lot. Famously, or perhaps I should say infamously, uh, Virginia had an exception to the Racial Integrity Act. 
if a person could prove that they had descended from John Rolfe and Pocahontas and therefore had Pocahontas's Native American blood, they could not be considered impure. So in other words, if they had, you know, some amount of Native American ancestry that they claimed that they, they could show with whatever evidence they had that that Native American blood came from Pocahontas herself, then that was considered good rather than uh, proof of impurity. This, uh, what was called the Pocahontas exception, was largely created because it was fashionable for Virginia elite to claim to be descended from Pocahontas, who had been, by this point, famously mythologized into a light-skinned Indian princess. Plecker, though, was even enraged by this ridiculous exception in the belief that uh, it would just be used as a loophole for black or mixed race people to claim to be white. He was intent on investigating those claims, even if it meant researching family lines and census records going back more than 75 years. And like, side note, my mom is super into genealogy. And she's been doing this extensive genealogical project on our family and like she's been working on it for years and years and and has Ancestry.com and Fold3 and all of these different newspaper databases. And she still, you know, has a hard time tracing individuals. How did this guy think that he was getting like, how did he do this much, much research, genealogical research on people to prove or, or disprove their racial identity? Right. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy. Ugh. Was he? A, he was a public official too, so yes. he's doing this all on yes taxpayer yes. dollars. That's exactly right. Yep, that's how white supremacy works. After World War II, Allison Hobbs argues that something shifted. Stories of several individuals and even whole families who came out as black after passing as white made national headlines. And instead of sparking widespread rage and horror, were treated as evidence of racial progress. The most famous was the story of the Johnstons, a popular and well-respected family in Keene, New Hampshire, who lived as white. Albert and Tyra Johnston and their four children were pillars of the community, accepted in all the local civic organizations, and Albert was a successful physician. But when Albert Johnston applied to join the Navy Medical Corps during World War II, the Navy somehow figured out he wasn't white. Though he was still able to keep that knowledge under wraps, it was a crack in Albert Johnston's commitment to staying white. The Johnston children did not even know that they were really black, and so when the oldest, Albert Jr., made a disparaging remark about colored people... It wasn't surprising, but it crossed a line for Albert Johnston Sr. Albie Jr., when describing... Did you just say Albie? I did. <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> I'm just going it's, to... It's good. I think he's an Albie. It's good. Yeah. I like it. Albie Jr., when describing a friend from school, said that the boy was popular even though he was colored. And Albert Sr. shot back, well, you're colored. The boy, unsurprisingly, was shocked... And Albert Sr. and Tyra spent the next several hours telling Albert Jr. about his real family history and their reasoning for passing as white. When they later told their younger children, the word soon traveled to the rest of the town. The story became a sensation, not just in Keene, but nationwide. Soon, 
Life Magazine, Look Magazine, Ebony Magazine, and Reader's Digest, several of the nation's most popular and widely read magazines, picked up the story. Each magazine marveled at the family's normality, at how seamlessly they were able to insert themselves into white society. The subtext, of course, was that there was something different about Black people beyond simply their skin color, something that should have set them apart and make them obvious. The Johnstons' success at being white in Keene, however, proved that that wasn't true. Moreover, to one degree or another, each story framed the local community's tolerance of the now black Johnstons as evidence of a change in America's opinion on race. The story so entranced Americans that it actually became the basis of a movie called Lost Boundaries. Oh, I've never seen it. Have you seen it? No, I have not. But now I kind of want to. Now I want Apparently, to, yeah. there's a scene in it that's that's fictionalized. I guess the the thing or the the story follows the this story that we just told very closely. But that there's a scene that they inserted where LB Junior is now like wants to like understand blackness, right? And mm-hmm. so he where else? Where else would you go to understand blackness? He goes to Harlem. Good, but yeah. Harlem is like this den of like crime and iniquity and so he has this like there's like this um scene where it's like him reckoning with blackness but all the depictions of blackness are bad Mm. right so it 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 does it it editorializes in a way that is not necessarily good yeah interesting the reality wasn't um so rosy as the lost boundaries i guess depicted although i don't know if that that scene is particularly rosy. um <laughs> oh it's certainly not as rosy as the magazines depicted yeah. right okay okay so albert senior lost his job at the local hospital though he did continue in private practice successfully for decades to follow another part of the story that the magazines didn't really cover was that albert johnston became more open in his civil rights activism In a speech to an NAACP branch in 1949, Johnston said that he and his family's experience was proof that racism could be defeated. Quote, when one person through intimate social contact understands another, his weaknesses and virtues, prejudice breaks down. In the years that followed the Johnstons coming out as black, personal essays about the refusal to pass became increasingly common, especially in black newspapers. It's no coincidence, I think, that this coincided with the growth of the civil rights movement in the 1950s. While there had always been a black resistance movement and efforts to increase black Americans' pride in their race, the organized movement garnered more national awareness and support. Passing became less common as black Americans demanded civil and political rights as black people. And apparently it became more common for white people to start passing as black. Right. So that's that's what I want to understand. And I I tried to um when I decided to start this this episode with these stories like Jessica Krug and Kelly Keen Sharp and these other folks, um, I guess I kind of expected to find more essays um, unpacking why it is that white people are, are passing now as people of color. And I couldn't really find much other than that one LA, LA Times um, column 
um, which talked about what this the the journalist called passe noir, which I think is really interesting. Um, but like, I, I really want to know more about this. I, I I really do agree with Aaron Aubrey Kaplan's you know estimation that it's it has something to do with white people you know trying to find legitimacy. Like, there's I feel like there's a certain amount of belief that being a person of color lends you social capital in academia. I mean, that's one thing that I think is going on here, but I don't think that that's the whole story. I I don't know if I have an answer for that, but um, do you, I mean, do you think that there's a sense with some of these individuals that they're, they're looking for social capital, not specifically to take advantage of the affirmative action system, right? Which I think is probably some of these people are doing that. Um, but instead to try and gain social capital within the communities that they're studying, right? Like, yes, that, wanna, that's what Aaron yeah. Aubrey Kaplan suggests. Yeah. yeah. If you want to so. conduct an oral history, it's going to be easier to make connections and have people trust you if you are an insider, right? Like that's like a common concern mm-hmm. in oral history methodology. Um, and and it, you, otherwise you'll be very limited in your sources. Um, yeah, but I right. think, and, yeah. and some of these, some of these scholars were writing about the communities that they were studying, right? Mm-hmm. Like Jessica Krug was more or less, I mean, she, she adopts several different racial identities over several different years. So like, it's kind of hard to say, oh, well, it's because she studied the African diaspora, right? right? Because she didn't always identify as of African descent. Um, but, and, and Kelly Keene Sharp studied, um, black Southerners and she identified as Chicana. Um, and so they, I think there is an element of that there, certainly. But then, you know, there's also, there's like something else going on. Like, like what, what, you know, Rachel Dolezal right. spent all of her working or a lot of her working career working in organizations like the NAACP. Right. Um, and I guess, you know, being black, calling herself black made that, I guess, make more sense to her or I, I, don't, I genuinely don't know. But I think it's there's something really um well, obviously something really gross, but also something really indicting about the fact that there is a long history of history of passing in the United States. Right. And that that is a painful history, a mm-hmm. history that was made necessary um, by white supremacy. because of Jim. Yeah. By white supremacy, because yeah. of white supremacy, because of Jim Crow and, and, and these and segregation laws and things like that. And that now or in Key, New Hampshire, people, right? Key, New Hampshire is. Not a slave state. It's not a Jim Crow state. Right. It's a white New England state. That's exactly right. Whiteness is privileged. Right. Right. And that's why I tried to make it very clear that this was like happening in America, not Mm -hmm. just in the South. Right. Um, But then now we have these white academics who are incredibly privileged. Right. Like they got these jobs. They like it's hard to get a job in academia. They got these jobs. Not all of them got them because they claimed to be of you know have a minority status um but there is still something that they that made them feel that they had to claim yet more mm-hmm. right um and so it's it's a perverse inversion of this 
passing yeah this this long and complicated and often really tragic history of passing yeah i don't know the answer i mean there's got to be some sort of psychological analysis of these people it starts as a little white lie right right and then snowballs again another white analogy into Mm -hmm. um, an identity that has become part of who you are as an academic Mm -hmm. it helps you get awards right like Mm -hmm. advance in your career yes and then and then what do you do right um exactly right yeah yeah yeah, and I think that there's also, at least in the the case of, I think Vitolo Haddad to a certain extent, um, but but certainly in the case of uh, Jessica Krug, um, there's also um, a super racist belief that by embodying someone of color, they can act in ways that are would be unacceptable for a white person right Right. so like in jessica krug's example i mentioned at the top of the episode that i was like super grossed out by having to research more about her because it just gets worse the more you look into it one of the reasons i said that is because there's um a video of her like earlier in 2020 um testifying before some new york city board of something you know talking about health of latinx communities in in new york city or something along those lines and she just she is portraying like the stereotypical you know latin woman right like the kind of loud in your face sort of um big gold earrings in this like really in this really offensive way now that you know that she's white Mm. right that she just you was able or she just kind of stepped into a stereotype it's it's blackface Mm -hmm. right i mean it's Mm -hmm. that's what it is um and so it's a way of functioning in the same way that blackface functioned in minstrelsy where it allowed white people to like take on these like exaggerated stereotypical um depictions of black people as you know silly and stupid and funny um, in order to kind of, I don't know, get some sort of thrill and attention out of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's gross. And I mean, obviously, while the laws are different and there are different, you know, we've had some changes in the racial hierarchies of America the white supremacy that created the opportunities for minstrel minstrelry to be funny and acceptable, they still exist to for somehow, you know, like facilitate these white people passing as black for their own, at you know, gain. Right. In some way. Yeah. Gross. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's still, um, all of this is is still in you know kind of with us but in in bizarre new ways that i hope that um you know if you listeners if you know of great articles on this issue please send them to me because i genuinely want to know more and you know there's only so much theory that you can delve into when doing the research for an episode so like Mm -hmm. i'd love to read your suggestions if you have them yeah 
Absolutely. So, and I just before we go, I want to um, just mention that one of the reasons I I opened the episode with these stories about white people, largely white women, right? White women academics playing themselves off as people of color um, was because in a episode that I released in 2020 on um, sort of African and African-American food ways, I thanked Kelly Keen Sharp at the end of that episode because she was in contact with me when I was researching, um, you know, telling me about her forthcoming work. And I mentioned several times how great her work was and and how you should, you know, people should reach out to her and, and, and pick up her book. And of course, had no idea um, that she was posing as Chicana and, and that that was not accurate. So when the, you know, story broke that she was um, doing that, I was really stunned and immediately, you know, kind of wished that I could go back in time and like take her out of that episode. Um, and so, it, I mean, it also raises the question of like, what do we do with the, the scholarship of these people? Right. Because it, it's it it's probably good scholarship. Um, what, Some, what do we yeah. Yes, I mean, I have not personally read. I, I honestly, even for that episode, as I mentioned when I mentioned her in that episode, I did not get a chance to actually read her work. Um, but Jessica Krug's work is highly um, was you know won a bunch of awards and stuff like that. So, you know, um, what do you do with these scholars after they've been disgraced in this way? And it's not. It doesn't. You know, this is a question that's bigger than this too, bigger than the issue of race, but. Also in recent years, you know, uh, scholars who have been accused of sexual um, assault and, right. and right. sexual harassment. What do you do with their work? So anyway, I just wanted to mention that, you know, that I um, I guess I'm sorry for highlighting Kelly Keen Sharp on the on the episode. I know it's complicated, but it, 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 it seems gross now that we have an episode that so strongly kind of is connected to her. I forgive you. I think it, I think it's like knowing more about an author is just means that you can now look for their biases more sharply in their work. Mm -hmm. Right. So if, if there is a misogynist element in an author's, you know, personal life, Mm -hmm. undoubtedly that's going to, make itself present some way in the way that they write, what they write about the questions that they ask. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think we can probably um, ask the same questions here about these, um, these people who are appropriating cultures and ethnic identities that are not theirs to do that with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way of saying it. I think that all in a way, you know, saying that they are passing is almost an inappropriate way of putting it, right? right. They're appropriating culture, yes. right? I think that's probably a, a much better way of framing it. Yeah. Um, they're what they're doing is not kind of, you know, sneaking under the the radar. They're they're stealing, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way to end. Yes, so- it is. Everyone, thanks for listening. <laughs> Sorry, I got kind of sad there at the end. I mean, this a lot of this was kind of sad. But anyway, yeah. be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Share your reading lists with us on Twitter um, or Facebook. Uh, you can join our Dig Pod Squad on 
Facebook or follow us uh, at dig underscore history on Twitter. And if you're looking to look sharp this summer season, be sure to get your hot tanks with dig history <laughs> exclusive designs on our T public score store, which you can find the link to our swag store as well as transcripts and bibliographies for all of our episodes at digpodcast.org. We have uh, also have resources for our uh, educators out there um, and a for educators section of our website, also at digpodcast.org. Please, um, if you are looking for a specific uh, materials or yeah. uh, if something would be useful to you, yes, you know? let us know. Just yeah. send us an email, hello at digpodcast.org or tweet us um, or post on Facebook. Um, we are listening and we want to make our work as useful to um, educators as it is entertaining to non-educators the life learners out there <laughs> all right thanks for okay. listening good job go buy some uh, onions this podcast was produced by the historians of dig elizabeth garner Masaryk, sarah hanley cousins marissa rhodes and me avril earls As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.